0: Uh, It is good to see you. I'm so glad that you are here. I'm excited. Uh, Today is the first Sunday of December 2020, Uh, a fact which I think is at once both relieving and surprising. (laughs) Uh, It's relieving that we've finally made it this far, and it's also surprising that we've finally made it this far in 2020. (laughs) Uh, It feels like we would never get here, and we're here. We're here. We're in December. Uh, I love Christmas season. I love Thanksgiving all the way through the end of the year. Those are some really good times. Family and just exciting and lots of eating. And so all those things go hand in hand to make for a good, a good few weeks. Um, but I uh, mentioned that... Or I just say this. I, I think I've mentioned this to a couple of you just in conversation or passing. Just how uh, distorted this year has been in terms of timing. Um, uh, it's felt... At once, I think both the slowest year and also the fastest year that, has ever, that I've ever experienced. Uh, I don't know what that says or what, why that is, perhaps, but in one sense, it feels like we've gone from February to now, December, in like a blink and a flash. Uh, we're here in December. And yeah, at the same time, it feels like these 11 months have been more like 11 years. And uh, now we're finally in the 11th year. We're in the 12th month of the year. And we can finally say uh, so, sayonara to 2020 and hello 2021. And we'll see if it's anything changes, which it probably won't, but that's okay. Um, but in times like these... Uh, there's a lot that is on our minds. There's a lot that we're longing for, a lot that we're expecting. Christmas is the season of expectation, as we sung in the hymn. It's the season of anticipation. Advent is really what that word means. is the appearing, and we're anticipating the appearing of the Lord, of the Christ. And there's not much that we can be sure of. In years like this, 2020, with all the things that it has gone on, and I don't mean to or I don't need to detail those for you. But if there's one thing I do know, if there's one thing that I'm sure of, it's this, is that we, and by I say we, I mean humanity, humans in general, we are desperate for comfort. We are longing to find comfort, and I don't mean, uh, when I say comfort, I don't mean like lounging on your sofa with a blanket and a fireplace and hot cocoa, all that sounds really nice and comfy. I don't mean that sort of comfort. I mean the sort of deep-seated soul comfort. The stuff that's deep within you that, that can't be touched by a fireplace, per se. It's the comfort that is deep within your bones is deep and it's, it's abiding. It's deep with, within you. I think we're searching for that. We're searching for something or, or someone to give us some good news of comforted, that, that we can be comforted by. Some good news that we can be assured of that all will be alright, all will be well in the end. And that there is some sort of solace and, and respite to be found. We're longing for that. And how do I know that? Well, if you look at the last several months of this year, 2020, uh, you can just look, if you do the the research, so to speak, you can find uh, statistics regarding uh, depression rates as they have escalated in 2020. And in fact, some studies have found that depression and mental illness symptoms have tripled throughout these last 11 months. Which is, I think, an interesting fact. Because you would think that uh, with our technological advances being what they are, you would think that we would be primed for a season where we have to stay inside. (laughs) Wi-Fi, Netflix, all sorts of gaming systems that you could ever want. We are primed uh, to, sort of say, have all the amenities and distractions to be like, stay inside for a while. And yet... (laughs) Even, that, even when we're told to, we, don't, we aren't comforted by that. There's, there's no sort of uh, deep uh, sort of feeling that we have we can be assured of that even with all those distractions that we can find comfort in them. Because that's the point. Those things can never give us what we are truly after. Screens can never replace faces. And so even as we're told to do certain things, they can never truly give us what we really want. We're still longing. We're still searching for something to give us comfort. The internet will never reach us at our deepest level. It'll never reach our soul for that. We do need something else. We do need someone else. We need some comfort from the outside. And I think that... That, those facts being what they are, it makes us sort of primed, I think, to hear the message of Isaiah 40. Look at the two first verses, Isaiah 41 and 2. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah 40, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, is one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. It's famous for many things. You're likely familiar with the last couple verses and and the image that it conveys of of rising up on eagles' wings. Perhaps it's your life verses. It's verses you've committed to memory. It's also famous because uh, this is the most quoted chapter in all of the Bible uh, when Handel was composing his magnum opus, The Messiah. Handel's Messiah features this chapter quite prominently, but it's also famous and significant for more reasons than just those. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It contains many uh, messianic implications and prophecies uh, throughout its verses. In fact, verses 3 and 4, you are likely familiar or or you might be uh, drawing your mind back to Mark chapter 1. As John Mark connects verses 3 and 4 with John the Baptist as the forerunner, as the one who would be the voice crying out in the wilderness, making the way for the Lord. He's connecting prophecy. He's tying this to Jesus and Jesus in that moment with John the Baptist to this in this comfort. There's all sorts of connections going on. But we have to also step back and see uh, what this chapter is doing in its original context because, as is often the case, uh, messages of comfort often are coming out of moments of deep calamity and catastrophe, and such as this chapter. Isaiah 40 marks the beginning of sort of the second phase, if you want to use that terminology, of of the prophet Isaiah's uh, oracles. And the remaining of which, Isaiah through the rest of the book, are messages that he would deliver either near the tail end or after the Babylonian exile had ended. You can see that, flip back one page to chapter 39, look at verse 5. Isaiah speaking to then the king Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon and nothing shall be left. Those are calamitous verses, we might say. Verses that don't offer much in the way of comfort. Everything is going to be taken away. Everything is going to be ruined. There's desolation here. You can see. You can see with that desolation being so evident. Why the consolation we might say of chapter 40 is felt so deeply by the people of Israel. They had come out of 70 years of desolation. 70 years of exile. By the way, an exile which we have to note was of their own doing. Because of their own uh, retribution and rebellion against their God. Now they are feeling the effects of this. And yet, they are given this comfort. They are desperate for it. And yet, as we see here, the comfort that is given to these people of Israel isn't necessarily the comfort they were expecting. I want to look at that really quickly through the, uh, a couple of these verses here in chapter 40. Three quick uh, lessons of comfort from this chapter. First of all, look back at verses 9 and 10. We have the comfort of beholding. The comfort of beholding. Look verse at, at verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings... Get up in the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. Behold your God, Isaiah claims. Which is itself a really interesting message. A really fascinating message to give to exiles or recently returned exiles. Behold your God. Notice verse 9. Notice where Isaiah the prophet identifies where these good tidings are going to come from. Notice. O Zion. You who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. Oh, Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Notice he says that word, that city, Zion. The mention of this has a depth of meaning behind it. Not just uh, looking to reference Mount Zion, which was just outside uh, the wall of Jerusalem. Mount Zion proper, we might say. It's not just a geographical sort of mentioning. He's not just meaning to uh, draw their attention to uh, this sort of uh, topography. In this context, Zion, as it is often throughout the prophetic books, it is meant to evoke thoughts of, the, uh, of the, uh, beyond just the literal Zion, but the, the spiritual and eternal Zion. Which is evoking this sort of uh, spiritual significance of this name. Which is to say it's, it's indicative of the true and better city of David. That they were everywhere looking. It's the longing of the Messiah he's trying to evoke here. Zion is also sort of uh, indicative of when the true king of Israel would come and Zion would be instituted. It's this eternal home. It's this eternal kingdom. The citadel from which the true king, the Christ, would rule and reign. This is what he's saying. This is where your good news is coming from. From beholding your king. Your true king, not just a really good king, which Hezekiah was, not just a a longing for a king who would one day fulfill the Davidic prophecy, but the true eternal forever king whose name is Messiah. This is what he 's meaning here by this mentioning of, Israel, of of Zion, and by this they, these Israelite exiles would be reminded of the sweeping promises that God, the Father gave to their ancestors, namely, of course, the promises that were given to David, if you remember from second Samuel chapter seven, that his throne would be a throne that would be established forever. And here this is sort of the culmination of that. He's bringing them to mind. That oh Zion you who bring good news. You have the good news that your king is here. Behold your God. This is the way he endeavors to comfort his people his people by calling them by petitioning them to to look away from to look beyond just their immediate conditions and circumstances and to behold the good tidings that their king is here the good tidings that the covenant that God their father had made with them is still intact it's still there The covenant interest that God had in the people of Israel was still established. And God was looking to establish his throne forever. In his kingdom. His kingdom of Zion. So behold your God. Then is behold your true and better king. Your true and better captain. This is the immense comfort that the people of Israel would likely have felt. When these words were announced to them, the king of Zion is here. It's the exact message that these beaten up, bedraggled people would need to hear. They, would, they could now be comforted, yes, in their calamity. In and out of all the catastrophe that they had endured for decades prior. Why? Because they have the good tidings of their kings appearing. The revelation of it, as it says in verse 5, of the glory of the Lord. That's their good news. And the comfort that these people of Israel had in this good tidings is the same that we have this morning. The comfort of beholding. Behold your God. Behold your king. You see, we, we, are, we are genuinely awful at, at creating comforts on our own. Uh, we can look back at what we just spoke through in the book of Ecclesiastes for evidence of that. But notice, notice verse number six. Because the prophet Isaiah is, is, is hinting at the same sorts of things. He says, the, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass.'" And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. Because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. We can't create comfort on our own. Because any comfort that we create fades. It fails like a a flower in the field or grass in the field. It, It fades and withers. We can't. Make for ourselves any deep-seated comfort that reaches us at our deepest levels, our souls. And such is why we are called upon here by the prophet Isaiah. Yes, speaking to people of Israel, but he's also speaking to us. Behold your God, who as he says here, the word of this God stands forever The comfort that this God brings doesn't change. It doesn't wither like the grass of the field. It doesn't fade like the flower. It stands forever. Unchanged. Undimmed. Unalterable. It's comfort that comes from this king. This God. These three words I think. Behold your God. This is the message Of Christmas in a nutshell. Behold your God. Whereas it is also, we could also translate it from John chapter 1, behold the Lamb. We could also say and echo it another way from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where we are given that wonderful promise of what this king would do. Matthew 1 21, behold the one who would save his people from their sins. Behold this one. Because all of that is wrapped up in this beautiful announcement of these good tidings that the, Zion, the king of Zion is here. And this message, behold your God, never goes out of season. It's a message that stands the test of time. Even as eventually... All of the garland and the lights and the decorations, when those are packed up neatly in their boxes. Behold, your God is still a message of good tidings that we can ring out with all boldness and strength and find comfort in. Specifically because, I think, just like this God doesn't change, there's a beautiful name that this God is given all the way in the book of Second Corinthians chapter 1. He is called, he is named the God of all comfort. Let me just read you those verses. You can write them down or, or go with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Paul here is writing to uh, a second letter to the church of Corinth. And listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our tribulation. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is who this God is. He's a God of all comfort. Who comforts us by petitioning us, by calling us to look away from ourselves. To look away from the particulars of our present tribulation and look to him. Behold the king, behold your God who is himself our comfort. We get comfort by looking to the one who is our comfort. Which I think reveals a startling truth. That the God... That we are called upon to behold is beholding you and I. Which leads me to a second point. We have the comfort of beholding. But secondly, go to verse 9 again. We have the comfort of belonging. Notice verse 9 again. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain of Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. I often pass over little little possessive little words like that. It's just a part of the sentence. But feel the impact and the meaning behind that word. Your God. Notice again what he says in verse 1. Comfort, yes. Comfort my people. Says your God, speak to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. My people, he says. There's an abundance of meaning here. But again, this God of all comfort is seeking to comfort his people by reminding him that they belong to him and he belongs to them. Their exile hadn't done anything to distinguish or extinguish, I might say, their, uh, his covenant to them. Rather, he is reminding them, I am your God and you are my people. I am yours and you are mine. They are his people. People that he seeks to comfort, that he seeks to bring close to him and console This is the beautiful picture that we get in verses 10 and 11. Look at them, where it says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. This is this God. He's reminding them as they are coming out, he is welcoming them with open arms to embrace them like a shepherd embracing a lost lamb, embracing his people, because he says, You belong to me. The comfort that that would give. Imagine after 70 years of captivity in a foreign land, again, an exile that they had almost invoked because of their sin, because of their rejection of this God. This same God gives them a message that is so striking. Because after their exile, what does he say? He doesn't say, all right, did you learn your lesson? Have you wised up yet? You're going to think twice about rejecting me next time, won't you? He says, comfort my people. My people, you are mine and I am yours. I am your God and I am ending your warfare. I'm ending your time of tribulation. I'm ending your time of iniquity because it's all pardoned by me. I am your God. Behold your king. He's reminding them that he was still their God. He was theirs. And which is, I think, one of the greatest comforts in the entire Bible. That it comes to them, but it's also to us too. It's the sinful reminder that you and I here, as, as the people of God, that is the reminder. You are the people of God. You as the church, you are God's people. This is something that cannot be shaken. It cannot be taken away. Which is what leads us to the, the bold, courageous confession like the Apostle Paul. What can man do unto me? I am God's. I am his possession. And he is my God. The comfort of belonging. Belonging to a God who is so vast. Who is so mighty. Who is so expansive. Read verses 12 through 25 on your own. Think about how vast this God is. And yet he says you belong to me. You are mine. No one can touch you. No one can shake you out of my fingers. He takes interest in you. You belong to Him, He notices all of your tribulation. This comfort that he gives to these people is exactly what they needed to hear. They needed to hear this message that their king was here, that their king and their God hadn't forgot about them. And this is so, uh, so representative of our God. He's not far off. He's not distant God didn't just wind up the universe and let it spin and go on its way. He's not a God who's hands off when it comes to his creation. He's not indifferent or disinterested in your circumstances. He wants to speak comfort into your circumstances. By being your comfort. By being and reminding you that you belong to him. He is near. He is present. This... (laughs) Is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. A God who is present. A God who is close. Close enough, as he says in verses 10 and 11 again, that he can wrap you up in his arms. Like a shepherd comforting lost sheep. Like a mother nursing her infant. What a beautiful picture of this God. Just notice verse 12. Who has measured the waters? This God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Measured heaven with a span. And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains and scales in the the hills in a balance. Who has done this? The prophet is seeking to evoke this large view of the might of God. And yet we are told in the verse just previous that he gently leads those who are with young. This mighty, expansive, big God is lowly enough to lead you and me with the gentleness and grace and tenderness of his care. Because you belong to him. He takes interest in you. Which brings me to the third comfort out of this text, I think. The comfort of beholding, the comfort of belonging, and lastly, the comfort of believing. Look at verse 9 again. You, Zion, who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You, who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. I think the ultimate comfort out of this chapter... Out of the message of Advent we might say. Stems from this very fact. That the God to whom we are called upon to behold. The God that we are reminded that we belong. We belong to him. Is this same God we are to believe that is among us. He is a God who is with us. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Again, look at verse number 10. Behold, this Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. He's insistent. Notice how insistent Isaiah is that this God is a God we can see. He shall come with a hand, with arms, that he's going to gather his people. Notice verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You can see it. And all flesh shall see it together, he says. Notice verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who has created these things? Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. This is a God that you can see. A God that you can believe in. This is what you are called upon and comforted in in believing. That this God of all things, this God of all comfort. This God who is so mighty that he can measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. Is a God who appears to you and I. That our fleshly eyes can see this glory revealed, revealed precisely because. And this is the remarkable fact of Christmas. Of Advent. That this God would have flesh too. That this God of all things. Is not some abstraction. He's not some made up Hope. To give hopeless people. He's not just some uh, amorphous sort of thing. Some ethereal spirituality that we're called upon to put our hopes and dreams in. Because it makes us feel better. Ours is a God unlike any God. Precisely because he's a God with skin and bone and flesh and fingernails. A God with hair that grew, a hair a hair that fell out, a God who was, uh, was stressed just like we are, who felt all the feelings of our infirmities, as it says, who felt every point in which we are tempted yet without sin. That's our God who came to be like us. Who, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, who was unafraid to be made in the likeness of human flesh and weakness, is this God, the King of Zion, who came to earth and, and ate meals with the vilest of the vile of all people, and who was born. As we sung about, to die for the very same sinners who would stand in that crowd and cry out, Crucify Him! He came to die for those people. He came to die for that crowd. He came to die for you and for me. And He did that by becoming like you and me and living the perfect life that you and I never could and dying the death that we deserved. We believe in this God and we are comforted. We are comforted by this glad tidings of a God who is present, of a God who is near, of a God who is close. This is what I think Isaiah 40 is calling us to be reminded of. A time when uh, when God's seeming hiddenness is over. It is time for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. I think this is the testimony of the scriptures. One writer says it this way. The cumulative testimony of the entire Bible is that when Jesus sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from. Jesus' most natural instinct, God's impulses move toward people who are sinners and who are sufferers to give them consolation. And he did that in perhaps the most demonstrable way possible at Christmas time. You want to talk about a move towards people? I'm going to become like as you are so that I can make you like me and bring you with me. When the, all things have ended, this is your comfort. The comfort of Israel was in beholding their God and being reminded that they belonged to Him and that in believing that this God was among Him and that this is our comfort too. In our calamity, in our distress. And our seasons of life that feel as though we are in our own sorts of exiles. We have a comforter who speaks directly to our needs and reminds us that he is our God. And that we belong to him and that he is with us. You have a God who is present. A God who is near. A God who is close. Close to those who are suffering. Do you believe in this God? Do you find, do you have the comfort of knowing this one who is the God of all comfort? Let us pray.